The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. Today's guest is Sebastian Budgen. We talked about the rise of Eric Zemmour, the new star of the French far right, and a candidate in April's presidential election. We talked about Zemmour's career in journalism, why he's able to attract support from both Le Pen voters and more mainstream conservatives, and we also talked about the strategic logic behind Zemmour's efforts to rehabilitate the reputation of the collaborationist Vichy government of World War II. Sebastian is a senior editor at Verso Books and serves on the editorial board of Historical Materialism, and he has lived in France for many years. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. By signing up, you'll get access to extended versions of all other PTO episodes, and you'll also get a 50% discount on any print or ebook from Repeater Books. Their excellent titles include Stolen How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K Punk The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. For most people outside of France, Eric Zemmour has probably only come to their attention in the last month or two due to his pretty dramatic rise in the opinion polls, which has seen him seriously challenge Marine Le Pen and and the far-right National Rally, formerly the National Front, and his declaration that he will be running for the presidency under the, the banner of Reconquête, or Reconquest, the party founded on December 5th. But within France, of course, he's known as a journalist, author and, and media personality with a, with a large public following. Could you talk about Zemmour's journalistic career and the transition to uh, electoral politics? I, I suppose one way to imagine Eric Zemmour is a mixture in the UK context of um, if you mixed up Andrew Neil and Katie Hopkins <laughs> and uh, you got somebody, but you had somebody who wrote books. It's quite a difficult concept in the British context to grasp, but, you know, in France, every politician and every political tendency have intellectuals or so-called intellectuals who write books. And in the case of Eric Zemmour, he writes lots of books. So, yeah, Eric Zemmour's background is, is um, he comes from a, um, a relatively lower class, working class or petit bourgeois Jewish family originally from Algeria who moved to France in the 1950s. He is almost self-consciously a kind of arriviste or social climber. So he, he's, very, he's very conscious of his kind of modest background and is, you know, somebody who has tried all of his life to ingratiate himself and crawl up the social ladder in the sort of higher bourgeois circles in France, but not 
totally successfully. He went uh, to, he did Sciences Po, the, the kind of one of the uh, elite routes into the French deciding classes, but it's not the, the most privileged one, and had a stint in advertising, where apparently he was, he was not very good. Then, yeah, moved into journalism, originally political journalism, so hanging around with politicians and trying to get, you know, stories from them. And then increasingly, as he made his mark, opinion pieces. So he's not somebody who's done any, broken any great stories as a journalist, apart from when he got close to Jean-Marie Le Pen and uh, he told him stories about, uh, you know, meetings with Chirac and so on. But uh, so he's not somebody who, who engages in great investigative journalism, but has been around the political elite and political circles for a long time now. And in the process, spun off a whole series of books which were not particularly successful until his big bestseller, The French Suicide, in 2010, which sold half a million copies. But that was, that was really a shift, as I say, from his kind of political journalist days to his days as an opinion writer and as an ideologue. In terms of his sort of latter journalistic career, the move towards opinion, he's also a talking head on channels such as such as C News, for instance, which again may not be familiar to people outside of France, but is sometimes characterised as, as the Fox News of the country. Yeah, so in the 2000s, Zimmer became more and more present on all sorts of channels on talk shows. So the French have this genre of, of talk shows, often quite long talk shows, which they, they mix in a little bit of showbiz and, you know, lightness, but they have, you know, ideological le clash, as they like to say, i.e., you know, people from supposedly very different political perspectives in very vituperative kind of contests with each other, shouting over, over each other and, and trying to have the last word and so on. So Exomor was quite popular, became quite popular on these kinds of shows because he, he's, he's so transgressive and trollish. And so built up a certain reputation for himself as a, as a, as a person who's good for ratings. In the most recent period, he has become a talking head every day of the week until he announced his uh, presidential ambitions on C News, which is which was originally called Itele, which is controlled by Vincent uh, Bolloré, who was uh, one of the f biggest French uh, multimillionaires, who has a transport and logistics empire, but has also spread into the media. And controls a whole section of the French media. He rebaptized Itele C News and really remodeled it, as some have said, on, on the kind of Fox News model. So, you know, it's chock a block full of uh, extremely reactionary, if not downright racist commentators. And Zemmour was invited specifically by Bolloré to appear uh, every day of the week on that show and, you know, gave him a, a, an absolutely perfect platform to launch his, his extremely provocative and, um, as I say, trollish kind of statements. But I think it's important to say, uh, you know, uh, from the start of that we were now quite familiar with um, figures from the so-called populist right who claim to be outsiders, to, to, be, to be sort of, you know, railing against the establishment. Zimmer very much is, and of course they're very rarely the case, but uh, Zimmer very, is, is, is a kind of key example of somebody who's been scratching at the door of the economic and political establishment in France for, you know, for, for decades now and is very much integrated in it and has been shown an enormous amount of indulgence 
by so-called intellectuals and opinion makers on the liberal left and the center right, as well as, you know, of course, the far right, for a long time now, for reasons we can discuss later. But, uh, you know, he's very much an insider in that sense, although an insider who is unhappy with his, you know, current status in the hierarchy. And what explains the current moment of him shifting into electoral politics and why does he suddenly become a plausible figure on the political scene? Because, it, you know, from an outside perspective, it might seem as if people who are interested in voting for the far right are well served by Marine Le Pen and, and the National Rally. Right. Well, I think there are kind of three levels to this. There is the sort of general political level, the transformation and, and fracturing of the French political scene. There's the specific level of the strategic dead end that some people feel that, the, that uh, Le Pen is in. And then there's the kind of personal, specific personal factors that affect Zemmour. I think obviously from the most general perspective, as, as we all know, that the French establishment parties, the centre-right and centre-left parties, the Socialist Party, and what was the UMP now, Les Républicains, have imploded or at least been reduced really to shadows of their former selves for the vast majority of the period from the 1980s onwards, what was known as alternance in French, i.e. You know, one government from the centre-right being replaced by one from the centre-left and so on and so forth. And this, this has obviously hit the buffers and is, in, you know, is a structure that is breaking down. And the emergence of someone like Macron, who, who didn't have any party, who you know, was a, uh, a start-up candidate, as it were, and who humiliated both those establishment parties in 2017, is, is a clear... It's a clear symptom of that, but it's a more general symptom. Uh, it's a more general phenomenon that has other symptoms of which Zermor is one, which is that the, the, the breakdown of this duopoly means that there is, especially with this highly centralized, personalized presidential election process in France, gives now the possibility for outsiders who don't necessarily have any anchorage, you know, at a local level, municipal level, or, or even a national level in terms of a party structure to break through, to get through to the second round, at least, in the presidential elections. So Zemmour, as I say, is one uh, symptom of that. You know, Jean-Luc Mélenchon on the far left or the radical left is another symptom of that. And there are others in the wings who are either attempting now or hoping in the future to be able to, to benefit from this kind of breakdown of the duopoly. So that's that's one issue, and that's obviously feeds, that itself is a product of a, of a more general kind of crisis of institutional politics in France. Then there's the level of the strategic impasse that many people on the far right feel that the, the Le Pen and uh, Front National and now Rassemblement National are in. So as we know, they've been incredibly successful on one level, which is the level of building up a very solid electoral base and being able to pose as, you know, the real main challengers to the institutional politicians for many years and being able to win elections to a certain extent, at least at a local level and, you know, have also built up an incredibly powerful now working class sort of plebeian electoral base, much bigger than any of the parties of the left. However, there are many people on the radical right and far right feel that there are a number of problems with Le Pen's strategy and that it's, she's hit a glass ceiling, as it were. That's for many reasons. Firstly, 
herself as a candidate. They feel that, for example, the way that she handled the last presidential election, the debate with uh, Macron that she famously completely screwed up, is a reflection of her supposed incompetence. Then, more generally, there's the notion that she, I think Zimmer put this very well himself, he, he said that Le Pen is in a ghetto, a working class and unemployed ghetto, i.e. that her electoral base is too plebeian, too proletarian, too lower class, and is a limitation on her ability to win over an electorate which is better off from the, from the centre-right parties. Is that partly just that she carries so much more baggage, given the whole history of, of the, the National Front and, and the association with her father and so on, that she is always going to be taboo to parts of the more sort of conventional right or, or more affluent voters? Well, there's that, obviously, yeah, there's a certain vulgarity about the Le Pen logo, if you like, which is seen as, uh, seen as problematic and, and, and rather icky to kind of more bourgeois voters. But there's also the fact that her electoral program really caters in many ways to her more plebeian base. So, for example, she's very careful to not fall into a straightforwardly neoliberal discourse about the welfare state. She's, uh, she's posed herself as, 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 you know, what political scientists call a welfare state chauvinist. So more or less defending the welfare state, at least in many aspects, but, you know, for French people, as opposed to non-French people, read between the lines, as you will. But, and, for example, on the whole debate around the uh, reform of the pensions, she's not in favour of, of, of shifting the age from 60 to 62 or 64. And so there's this idea that she's kind of, well, many people on the radical right say that she's become, you know, she's become a Marxist or she's become a socialist or she's become melanchonized or whatever. So there's this notion that she's hit a, a kind of a buffer sociologically. And then there's the, also the notion that she's too sectarian towards the other currents on the right. So, you know, as you know, the far right in France after the Second World War, uh, particularly after the Algerian War of Independence, had to kind of reassess its strategy and its ideology, and that went in, in, in many different directions. And one of the key directions that went in was trying to understand how to, how to win a, a wider popular base that was currently kind of monopolized by the right-wing parties. And, uh, of course, the, the Four National was launched as, a, as an attempt to do that precisely by kind of putting in the sidelines some of the more problematic associations with, the, with Vichy or with Nazism or with fascism and putting, putting the question of immigration, unemployment at the centre and then increasingly now uh, Islamophobia. But there was also within that a question of how do you relate to the right-wing uh, right party, the main right-wing party, and you could say that the, the far right was, was kind of split in its attitude, some pushing for what you might call, what the left calls a, a, a kind of third period attitude, i.e. seeing the centre-right party as the main enemy that needs to be destroyed because it's taking up an electoral space that you want to occupy, and others having what you might call, from a left perspective, a united front perspective towards the right-wing party. So the notion is, of course, the right-wing party needs to be split, needs to be destroyed, but only first by pulling it within your orbit and by building bridges to the more right-wing elements in it and carrying out common, common campaigns and actions and ideological fronts and then splintering it. So there's the notion that Marine Le Pen is too much in the, and, and her father were too much in the former position, i.e. seeing the, the right-wing party as, uh, as not a potential ally that could be 
pulled in, but rather as an enemy that needed to be destroyed. And many people on the radical right and far right think that that's, that's the wrong strategy and that, you know, the center right is there for the pickings, as it were. It's, a, it's an ailing, sickly body, but which could be picked to pieces if the right strategy is is adopted. And if that, that was, of course, is, is, is uh, her niece's, Marion Maréchal's strategy, is the, is the idea of building a convention or a, some kind of a front that would bring together all these different currents of the radical right, including those in the centre-right party. So that's uh, a, another criticism that is made of Marine Le Pen. And then finally, there are people on the radical right and far right who feel that she's too soft, uh, believe it or not, on um, <laughs> the question of uh, Islam. So obviously, as I said, Islamophobia has become the key cutting edge of contemporary racism in France. But Marine Le Pen, as part of this strategy of so-called de-demonization, has been repositioning the Front National, now Rassemblement National, as a, as a potential you know, party of government. And therefore, she has been relatively careful to avoid controversial stands that other elements on the far right are trying to, to, to push Forward. So, for example, she has said that is Islam as a religion is compatible with the, the Republic, and that is something that's considered, you know, by Zimur and others to be outrageous. That Islam is the same thing as Islamism; it's completely incompatible. It's a foreign body uh, that that is incompatible with the French Republic. She's um, refused to endorse, although some of her you know, underlings have, have, have flirted with it or endorsed it, but she herself has refused to endorse the theory of the great replacement, that there's some kind of big overall strategy to replace white and French, quote-unquote, populations with populations from outside of France. And she has also been very careful on, you know, so-called societal issues such as um, abortion and gay marriage and so on, not to engage herself frontally in in a, in a kind of tra traditionalist defense of the family or against abortion and so on. So she's been quite careful to keep away from those subjects or to maintain a low profile herself on those subjects because she knows that many of her supporters in the you know, working class are not you know, big supporters of anti-abortion campaigns or particularly exercised by gay marriage as, a, as an issue. And so people on the radical right feel that she's too cautious, that she's kind of sold out, that she's too soft, and ironically, some of the mainstream politicians, Gérard Darmanin, for example, who debated with her, who's a minister in Macron's government, you know, he debated her on TV, I think it was uh, earlier on this year, and, you know, he, 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 he tried to, you know, catch her out by saying that she, he thought she was too soft on, you know, Islamic fundamentalism and so on. So there are politicians even, you know, who are not part of the radical right who try to, try to position her as if she's become somehow, you know, institutionalized or, or become, you know, subject to parliamentary cretinism or something like that. And that is a refrain that, that is taken up by very much by people around Zimur, that she, she's kind of lost her, lost her edge and that you need to polarize around these issues much more aggressively. How does that polarization work at the same time as trying to build bridges with other parts of the right? Because in the book you mentioned that, that Zemmour wrote, the, the 2014 book, the, the French Suicide, in that book, he seeks to rehabilitate the reputation of the Vichy government, the collaborationist regime led by Philip Patin after France's defeat by Nazi Germany during World War II. Why do you think he's made a point of, of trying to do that, since one might imagine it would put off more moderate right-wing voters? You know, Zemmour's strategy, up to now at least, has been 
the strategy, as I say, of polarizing. You take a particular issue, you take an extremely controversial position on it, it creates enormous backlash, you know, from sort of the bien-pensant uh, sections of the, of the media and of the political establishment. But you attract to your, yourself, you attract a lot of publicity, obviously, but you attract to yourself a hard core of people who think that, you know, you're, you're right and that you're somehow breaking a taboo or that you're uh, saying things that can't be said, or that you're... And this is, this is a discourse that, you know, many people say about Zemmour on all sorts of subjects, that, you know, of course, we don't agree with Eric Zemmour, but, you know, he's, you know, all these issues that are being brushed under the carpet by all the other candidates, you know, he's at least putting them out on the table. He calls a spade a spade, as they, as they used to say. He's frank, and he's, you know, not afraid to defend his values and so on. And the question of Vichy is... Um, is a complicated one, of course, for the for the right, because there's a whole section of the right which is a Gaullist right, which is you know fundamentally um, opposed to uh, to Vichy and sees them as traitors. But there's another section of the right that thinks, and this includes people who don't necessarily see themselves as on the far right, who say that well, all this stuff about Vichy is a bit over-egged, and what could they have, what could Pétain have done in the circumstances? You know, you have to put things in context. There's a big debate about, uh, well, supposedly a big debate about to what extent Pétain, quote-unquote, defended French, you know, sacrificed foreign Jews in order to, quote-unquote, defend French Jews. And there's a notion that has, has been spread, which is the idea that actually there's a kind of implicit pact between Pétain and de Gaulle. De Gaulle was the sword of the resistance, but Pétain was the shield. And that somehow, you know, under the radar, they were kind of collaborating to defend France in difficult circumstances. A complete nonsense, of course, but it is a consoling myth. And you have to take into account that much of this historiographical debate about Vichy and about its real involvement in, for example, the facilitating of the deportation of Jews and so on, and, the, and thus the Holocaust, is fairly recent and hasn't really been digested or accepted by many people on the right. So by making those kind of statements, you know, Zimbabwe has his cake and eats it because he's able to, to create this outrage, appear as a transgressive outsider, but he's really whispering in the ear of people who want to hear this kind of stuff and have been repeating this kind of notion for many years. Sometimes he backs down from it, like in his last debate yesterday, I think it was, with a Bruno Le Maire, another minister in the Macron government. He said, oh, no, I didn't say that. You know, France was... And then he tries to wriggle out of it by saying, you know, France was in London around de Gaulle, so France can't be responsible for the deportation of the French Jews under Vichy. But that's obviously, you know... Uh, rather pathetic dodge, but it is something which speaks to what is basically an unresolved problem within the, the psyche, particularly of people on the French right, but even, you know, across the, the board, there is this notion that somehow that, you know, of course, Vichy was, was bad, but was it as bad as all that? And in the circumstances, what could you have done differently? And, you know, isn't this all a bit over-egged? And basically, it's, it's the Germans. Anyway, it's the Germans' fault. And why, why are we spending time berating poor old Pitar about this? And is part of the strategic rationale that if one could somewhat rehabilitate the reputation of, of Vichy, that, that then makes an alliance between the far right and the more conventional right more plausible because that ceases to be such a point of contention between them? Exactly. If you can, if you can take the venom out of this issue that opposed Gaullists and anti-Gaullists for the whole, you know, 
whole period of the, the post-war period, then it means that it could talk about the real issues that count, i.e. immigration, law and order, and so on. And therefore, you know, it's much easier to build alliances. Of course, there have been attempts to build alliances beforehand. Zimur, before his kind of current turn, was around the sovereignteist milieu, so people who originally formed around the opposition to the Maastricht Treaty, and that included people from the right, Henri Guénaud and Charles Pasqua and so on, who, who come from the, the right Gaullist wing of the centre-right, and people who came from, from supposedly the left, like uh, Jean-Pierre Chevènement, and people who were prepared to support sovereignteism, even though they didn't come from a Gaullist background at all. So there was already a kind of a space in which Gaullists and non-Gaullists and other and different families of the of the right could mix together and and unite over this sovereignteist kind of issue. But yeah, Vichy remains a kind of a barrier that that is still a problem ideologically. And if if it can be if it can be resolved in the way Zimbabwe wants it to be resolved by kind of banalizing it or just taking it head on and then you know making it a non-issue by taking all the heat out of it ironically, by making it highly controversial, then, yeah, it, it opens a way to new kinds of possible alliances. On the point about Maastricht, where does Zemmour stand today on the European Union and, and how does it contrast with Marine Le Pen and the National Rally who've moved away from their more overt hostility to the Union? I mean, one thing that has to be said with Zemmour is that he's so monomaniacal about Islam and immigration that the rest of his programme, economic, social and other aspects, are somewhat mobile and difficult to pin down. But yeah, I mean, he's very critical of the, you know, bureaucracy of the European Union, blah, 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 in a, in a kind of Brexiteer type of manner. But he's very careful, as, as you rightly say, is Marine Le Pen now, to avoid the idea of supporting some kind of Frexit or some kind of exit from the European Union. Because he knows and she knows that that's going to be a big problem for the part of the electorate that comes from the centre-right, that is better off, that is often involved in, in, you know, who are capitalists or small capitalists or whatever, or, or the retired, who see that as a very risky and potentially disastrous path for French capitalism. So Marine Le Pen did, for example, flirt with this idea, particularly under the influence of her, of her advisor, Florian Filippo, for several years. But she has clearly backed away from that position. Similarly, Zimor is, you know, he's a protectionist. He's, he claims to be against globalization. He attacks the aspects of the European Union that uh, are easy to attack, bureaucracy and so on. He obviously is not happy with the idea of, uh, you know, European law prevailing over French law, especially with the enormous and discriminatory kind of policies that he wants to put into practice. But he's not prepared to come out and, and say that he's for a Frexit. And to the extent that he's clear about this, what's your sense of his views on, on foreign policy? Does that does the criticism of the EU, does that flow into a more sort of Atlanticist perspective as, as compared with someone like Emmanuel Macron? Or, or does he have perhaps a more Gaullist view when it comes to foreign policy? I think all of that is very unclear, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's not a subject that... I mean, economics and geopolitics are not really subjects that interest him very much. You know, some of, some of his advisors despair that, you know, when they try and get businessmen to come and have lunch with him and talk to him about economics, he starts yawning and, and clearly has no real interest for the subject. And on geopolitics, I mean, there's a lot of 
rubbish about virility and uh, you know overcoming the feminized society which was the subject of his first sort of very successful book but you know that the man himself was excused for military service for medical reasons and i i don't think that there's any real grand plan there's there, you know as when marine le pen there's there's no doubt just kind of flirting with the idea that you have to you know take a softer line with putin than macron does but th- there isn't really i would say a particularly worked out position on this. Going back to the 2014 book, The, the French Suicide, where he expounds on the, on the theme of French declinism, which is obviously a very sort of popular topic across the, the political spectrum in, in France these days. But in that book, I mean, in, in contrast to other political figures on the right, he's, he doesn't seem to be solely fixated on, on 1968 and its, and its legacies, but rather he extends the moment of French declinism all the way to the French Revolution and, and the later defeat of, of Napoleon at Waterloo. Can you talk about those historical obsessions of, of his and why he emphasises the much more distant past? Right, well, part of the shtick that Zimmer has is, you know, he has this hyper-assimilationist position about immigrants and so on and, and holds up himself as an example of, of the success of that. And, and one of the aspects that he wants to put forward as a way of assimilating the supposedly, you know, so-called non-French into the French society is buying into a hyper-idealized, completely false, but, you know, heroic vision of the French past. So he has this lineage that goes, you know, Joan of Arc, Louis XIV, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. This is the real history of France. And then, of course, there's the backstory about fighting off the Arab invasion and so on. So there's, it's very much a kind of great man and woman in the case of Joan of Arc theory of, of history and is quite explicitly mythological. I mean, he, you know, he, I think it's one interview, he says, you know, everybody has their own truth and so on and so forth. And it's all about the way you spin it. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of openly mythological notion. Identifying with, of course, figures of authority and authoritarian figures in the case, of course, of, of Bonaparte but who will contribute to the grandeur of France and so on. And you're right, 68 isn't the only thing that he identifies, although he does see the whole post-war effeminization, supposedly, and mongrelization of France as a, as a particular problem, and that's, that's what he himself has uh, observed in his, you know, from his experiences, or what he claims are his experiences. Um, but yeah, the, the idea is to construct this millenarian conception of, of France going back thousands of years, this great history which has been betrayed and, and let down. And that's really to try and give some, some more moral fiber, rather to, to try and give a, a kind of greater ideological grandeur to the vision that he's trying to put forward, that this isn't just about, this isn't just about some, some local or conjunctural issues that need to be solved. This is about, you know, the soul of France that needs to be saved. And to save the soul of France, which is, you know, in such danger, you obviously need very radical measures. You can't be happy with small, you know, reforms. So it's not a, a real historiographical discourse but it is, it is a, a mythological discourse. And, you know, he says he's very influenced by, um, the historian Jacques Bainville, who was a, a key figure in um, in Action Française, the royalist movement that was that was important in the early 20th century. So, you know, I, I think it's it's really to kind of give some ballast to this idea that uh, there's a notion of decadence, which is very profound, and that needs to be dealt with in an extremely radical way. And then there's a whole kind of 
There's a whole melancholic shtick as well about, you know, that maybe everything is doomed and, you know, France is going down the tubes and it's all, it's all, we're all screwed anyway, but at least we need to, you know, we need to show that we've made an effort to, we've stood up and fought, fought the good fight and so on. So it, it allows you also to, um, to, you know, rally the troops with this kind of mythological vision and at the same time, you know, um, play into this declinist melancholia that is a more general thing that isn't just something on the far right. You know, people like Anna Finkelkraut and others are, are very susceptible to this vision of, the, you know, there's something that's gone seriously wrong with, with French culture and society and that, you know, probably it's untreatable, but if it's treatable, it's only treatable with, you know, radical surgery. Does Algeria play much of a role? I mean, obviously, as you say, his family were from there. Is there any effort to try and rehabilitate the French Empire and France's presence in the country? Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, I think it's important to say from the outset that one of the weird aspects of this situation is that it would be difficult to imagine a sort of spokesperson for the French far right who, on the face of it, would be more unsuitable in terms of their own criteria you know, a somewhat weedy, hunched-back intellectual scribbler who, as I say, didn't do his military service, who's a Sephardic Jew. None of these aspects of his persona really fit with the idea of, you know, some kind of obelix-style virile ghoul who's going to come and, and, save, uh, and save France from its, uh, its effeminized elites and, you know, intellectual masturbators and so on and, and, and really, you know, bring France back onto the right path. But, you know, many have had to swallow, many on the far right have had to swallow their doubts on this question, although they still express them about, you know, is he really physically the right type? Uh, and uh, uh, can we really trust him for his, due to his racial background or ethnic background? But yeah, I, the, the question of Algeria does play an important role. And there is a very clear attempt in his case to re-legitimize colonialism. In fact, he goes so far, he went so far as to say that, you know, he would, he supported the General Bujot, who, who was one of the first most brutal colonizers of Algeria and massacred, you know, tens of thousands in the 19th century, that, uh, you know, obviously he's going to support the idea that the colonization brought many, uh, you know, positive aspects. And a lot of this fits with his particular background. So, as I say, he, he's a, his family were Algerian Jews. He likes to claim they were Berber Jews, so it allows him to say that he was from Algeria but not Arab. They were Berbers, you see. But Algerian Jews had a specific status thanks to the Crémieux decree in 1870, which gave them French citizenship. So when his family moved to France, they, they moved as French citizens. They weren't migrants, yeah. That's right. So there is this notion that, you know, they were given French citizenship, of course, the Arab population was not given French citizenship, but in the sense they became honorary whites or honorary French. And so there's a hyper assimilationism involved here, you know, becoming more French than the French, becoming more, more identified with the colonizers than the colonizers themselves. And of course, then holding out their own success in doing so as, a, as an example to be followed by other people from other backgrounds and their failure to do so, you know, indicates their, their fundamental inability to fit in with French society and so on. So yeah, Algeria does play that kind of role. I'm not sure whether he said openly that he thinks, you know, that Algeria should not have gained its independence, but, you know, I'm sure he would 
at certain occasions be prepared to endorse that kind of idea. I mean, it doesn't have the same valence as it, as it did, of course, in the 1960s to take that kind of position. But, you know, colonization in general, French power, you know, taking this kind of rather pseudo-macho position of saying that, yeah, you know, that's life. Life is all about suffering and, and death and, you know, and uh, imperialism and, uh, you know, the strongest wins and so on, kind of Darwinist um, notion, pseudo-Darwinist notion of, of power and, and nationhood and so on. And more specifically, in this famous interview that he got in trouble for a few years ago with the Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera, when the interviewer asked him, you know, are you really saying that, you know, all these so-called immigrants in France should be shipped back to their, to their countries of origin? Can't, can't you see that this is, uh, you know, completely, uh, you know, horrific and, and extremely violent as a process? He, he kind of shrugged and said, well, you know, history has shown us uh, other examples that we wouldn't have expected. You know, what about the one million French colons, who, who, including many Jews, who, who, were, who went back to France after independence. And then he used the example of the German, you know, massive German refugee and, and immigrant uh, migration waves after the Second World War. So, yeah, the, the whole theme of Algeria allows him to, to say various things, you know, both I'm more French than the French, you know, the, the France is great, that their colonization is great, that it's not, you know, none of this is, is our fault. But at the same time, he can play on this idea that he's a Mediterranean, that he has some kind of, you know, specific, you know, he, he, he used as an excuse the fact that when he was in Marseille recently, he gave the finger to a demonstrator. Uh, there was this sort of face-off. Uh, it was a very disastrous trip to Marseille where he faced a lot of opposition and there was a, a person on the street uh, who gave him the finger and he gave the finger back to them. And this, this uh, was captured in a photograph uh, and, you know, didn't really fit with the idea of a hyper-respectable politician. And he said, oh, well, you know, I'm a hot-blooded Mediterranean. What can I do? You know, I express myself in these ways. So it allows him to, to, to try to play on a certain ambiguity there. But definitely the, the question of colonization is, is um, and the legitimacy of French colonization. And of course, if Bonaparte is one of your heroes, the empire itself is an important aspect of this, yeah. As you say, his primary preoccupations are migration and Islam. But has he said much at all about the pandemic? Or, you know, where does he stand on issues around lockdowns, vaccines, vaccine passports and so on? Yeah, well, he, again, he's, he's quite careful here because he, like Marine Le Pen, have to be, have to be attentive to not, you know, to, to giving nudge, nudge, wink, wink to the right kind of constituencies, but without supporting them so thoroughly that they could alienate other constituencies. So he's not anti-vax, he's not openly anti-vax, but at the same time he says, uh, you know, it's not his responsibility to call on people to be vaccinated because he's not in the government and he's not a doctor. <laughs> so it's, it's not his position to do that. And many people in France are opposed to the, the COVID pass because they, they, they feel it's discriminatory. And that, but, you know, there are people on the left as well who are opposed to that pass. So it's, it's not a straightforward left-right issue. But, yeah, you can see that he's trying to position himself so that he can attack the government for its supposed incompetence or real incompetence and its real authoritarianism without positioning himself so that he falls into the camp completely of the conspiracy theorists and the, the anti, anti-vax campaigners. And clearly, you know, he quite explicitly is for an extremely authoritarian form of government himself. So you can imagine 
you can imagine the kind of measures that he would have proposed had he been in power. So it's difficult for him to claim that he's somehow an advocate of freedom in the abstract, because that's not part of his programme. He's for order and for, you know, restoration of order and legitimacy of power, not at all for some kind of libertarian notion of freedom. So Zemmour is, in the latest opinion polls, he's still running somewhat behind Marine Le Pen. He's on around about 14%. So it doesn't seem right now particularly likely that he's about to break through, you know, get into the second round and certainly not to win that contest. But if, if one imagined Zemmour in government, I mean, it's been suggested that potentially that would be more dangerous than even Marine Le Pen and the, and the national rally because the police and the judiciary might perhaps look more favourably on somebody like Zemmour than they would on, on Le Pen. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would say I would be careful to say, you know, on the basis of polls now, what is likely to happen in the election. French politics are, is notoriously volatile and is even more so in the current period. There's a funny exchange as a parenthesis between Marx, I think it's Marx, I think it's Engels. They're, they're kind of throwing around their analyses of what's going on in French politics at the end of the 19th century. And there's you know, a phenomenon of this General Boulanger as a very nationalist figure who emerges. Some people have drawn parallels with, um, with Zimur. And, you know, they, they try and discuss the ins and outs of what's going on. And at a certain point, Engels just kind of throws up his hands and says, well, what can we really say? Because France is the land of the unexpected. And there's something very true about that, I think, uh, especially now, especially with the electoral scene specifically. So I would be careful about assuming that things are going to play out in a few months as they are playing out now. There are several big obstacles for Zimbabwe. The first is financial issue. Of course, he, as I said, he has the support of Vincent Bolloré in the background. He had uh, another millionaire who's recently pulled out who was prepared to stomp up cash for him. But, you know, he doesn't have a party structure. He doesn't have, um, he has the money that he's earning from his book, which is self-published. So he's earning much more money than he would have otherwise. But, and his whole campaign staff is a real mess, to be honest, at the moment of various people from the far right group of schools, some loose cannon individuals and very little in terms of, you know, real structure. And then there's Sarah Afo, his, his advisor, who, you know, deserves a chapter on her own. So, you know, he has real obstacles to be able to get, get through. And, uh, and as I say, there are sociological obstacles too, you know, the, the, he, he's clearly not as successful as Marine Le Pen in the working and plebeian classes. But yes, it is true that, as I said earlier, this is uh, also reflected in the indulgence that he has benefited from from the media and sort of supposed intellectuals like Finkelkraut, like Jacques Julliard, like many others. There is this notion that, in a sense, he's more, despite being more radical in his discourse than Marine Le Pen, he is he's one of us. You know, he is basically, you know, he's he's clubbable. You know, he's he's not some kind of weird outsider who might be completely uncontrollable. I mean, I think. He could actually be uncontrollable, but for different reasons. But yeah, there's this notion that his agenda is more moldable by, you know, particularly economically, and that he could, you know, perhaps be channeled better and he doesn't have an apparatus behind him. So something could be provided that would, that would allow him to, that would, you know, that would put some limits or put some shape on what he was doing. So in that sense, I think it's true. On in another sense, though, I think he's, you know, he's not a politically, despite being around politics for many years, he's not got any political experience. 
And so he makes these kind of wild claims about what, what he's going to be able to do once he's in power. And many of the things that he's proposing are unconstitutional, illegal, you know, just not feasible in the short term would involve very radical referendums or changes or, you know, kind of coup-like procedures in order to, uh, to make them happen. Whereas Marine Le Pen has, you know, a more realistic view, I think, about politics and about building up molecular power and spreading one's influence in the institutions, particularly the repressive arms of the state, but more generally also the, the higher civil service and so on, and then being able to bend that to your will, but within limits and doing it, you know, as a homeopathic thing to start with and then increasingly making it more radical over time rather than going in with your all guns blazing. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's complicated and obviously we're in the, the realm of hypothetical events. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.